Christmas to everyone because it is still the season of Christmas. So Merry Christmas. Uh, We will read our text in a moment. Um, I know that we were unable to meet last week because of our our plumbing issues that we had due to the cold weather. Uh, But I do want to put this out there. I guess there's a word I'm looking for. My brain is coming blank. But Our text for today that you'll see in your bulletin really does build out of the text that we were planning on considering last week on Christmas morning. Now, what I ended up doing uh, is I ended up recording that message anyway, and I put it out on our listening audio. So if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, the joke I want to make is shame on you because it's been out there for a week, but obviously that's just a joke. Uh, It's not a big deal because I am going to read that text again this morning. Uh, But it is out there, so if you have not listened to it yet or have not discovered the fact that we record our Sunday School and Sermon Audio, it is out there. Uh, There is uh, details on the back of your bulletins if you want to know where that is. But um, our text for today really does build out of the text that we considered last week from Isaiah chapter 62. And if you have your Bibles or a device and you want to pull that up as well, we are going to consider that text along with this one today. But... What I think this really will help us do, again, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, do so, because I think it does add some depth to what we see this morning. Because the text for today really acts like a hymn. It is a hymn. It's a psalm of praise that will eventually, not in the text that we're looking at, but eventually in the same chapter turns into a psalm of lament. But this psalm of praise for us, or this hymn, it actually builds out of our celebration. It's based out of of our celebration of the miracle of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles open and you want to turn back to the very end of Isaiah 62, we will read verses 10 through 12, which are the three verses that we looked at last week. And then I will read our text for this morning along with that, and then we will pray and we'll look at a few details together. So here is what the Lord God proclaims in Isaiah 62 through the pen of Isaiah. He says, go through, go through the gates and prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway and clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out and a city not forsaken. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted to us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he has said, for he said, surely they are my people, a children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. 
So if you would, join me now in prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for today, Lord. We thank you, Father, Lord, that uh, our plumbing has been fixed and we are able to meet, Lord, here in our building today, Lord, uh, to worship you and to sing praises to your name and to consider your word together. And so, Lord, as we continue to celebrate the season of Christmas, Lord, we pray, God, that our hearts and our minds and our ears would be open to hear your word and to understand it and to believe. And we ask and pray all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, so as we get started, again, based upon Isaiah 62, 10 to 12, to me, this just, this just reads like a hymn. Like, again, it's building out of what we read and out of what we discussed last week. And I'll hit on some of those points again today. But, but so consider really how this works. And here's kind of the, the preview of all of this based on last week and now this week. So because of the Lord Jesus, because of his incarnation, because of his redeeming work, we have been named, as we read there in 62.12, we have been renamed as the holy people. We have been renamed as the redeemed of the Lord, the sought out, the not forsaken. And so now, moving into verse 7 and through the rest of this chapter, verse 7, we recount the steadfast love of God and the praises of God, and we do so out of what God has granted to us. He's granted us the person of Christ. He's granted us the salvation of the Lord. He has sought us out. He has made us his people. He has not forsaken us. He has redeemed us. This is why we recount together the steadfast love of God. And we do so according to his compassion, we read here in verse 7. We do so according to his steadfast love that he's granted to us. He's granted to us salvation and goodness within the house of Israel or within the church. And so before we start to really unpack what all of this means, let's, let's take a moment and look there in the beginning of verse 7 and really the end of verse 7. And we see that there is this phrase that's repeated that we really need to consider the weight of before we can unpack the rest of the chapter. And the phrase is this. It's the steadfast love of God. And as we'll see as we go through these three verses, God's steadfast love informs the entirety of these three verses. So to understand this term, what we have to do, we have to take a moment and do a little bit of a Hebrew word study. And it's a word that Isaiah uses that some of us might be familiar with if we know Hebrew or if we've even heard this word even used from the pulpit, regardless if you know Hebrew or not. And it's the word hesed, which is just spelled with vowels, H-E-S-E-D. This word hesed, it implies a few different things. It implies a loyalty from God, but it also implies an unfailing love from God. And it's often used, as it is used here, to refer to God's love as it relates to his faithfulness to his covenant and his covenant people. So just to illustrate, there, there are a lot of passages in the Old Testament that use this, but just to illustrate, let me give you two that you might be familiar with. One is in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord says to Moses, he says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love and faithfulness for thousands. Another place this is familiar, and we brought this up even in Sunday school today, is probably, other than John 3.16, one of the most well-known passages of Scripture the world over, even among other religious people that don't claim Christ. And that is Psalm 23. And at the end of Psalm 23, in verse 6, David says this, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Hesed will follow me. This is the word he uses there. God's hesed will follow me all the days of my life, 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, as we come back to Isaiah 63, why is grasping this understanding of steadfast love or hesed important? It's important because it helps us to fully appreciate the loyal love that God has for his people. So what we have here in this hymn of praise, in this psalm of praise in verses six, excuse me, 7, 8, and 9 of Isaiah 63 is not only a hymn of praise to God for his salvation, nor is it only a hymn of praise to God for his love for us, but it is a hymn praising God for his unfailing loyalty to his covenant that he has made with his people. Matthew Henry writes here, he says, Isaiah mentions the steadfast love of God, which has never appeared so evident and so imminent as in his love to mankind by sending Christ. There's a theologian in the Eastern Orthodox Church from the late 900s whose name is Simeon. He was an interesting guy. I had to look him up because I'd not heard of this guy before. His name is Simeon the New Theologian. And the reason he was called Simeon the New Theologian is because he was a bit charismatic. And it bothered some people in the church. <laughs> and, but his charismatic theology turned out to be somewhat orthodox. So they called him the New Theologian because this was a new theology that some people had just not really considered. But in that being said, he writes in the late 900s about the Hesed of God. He says this. He says, When I in my senselessness... Rejoiced in being led astray by my shameful thoughts and deeds, you, O Lord, could not bear to see me led about and dragged in dishonor. But you had compassion, O Master, and you showed pity upon me. It was not an angel or a man whom you sent to me, but you yourself were moved by your tender goodness, by your hesed, and you came to me. So God's steadfast, loyal love describes for us the kind of faithful love that God has towards his people because he has made a covenant with them. And so with this understanding of hesed, with this understanding of steadfast love, let's just work, work our way through this text. So first we read, just again, at the beginning of verse 7, we read, Isaiah writes this, he says, I will recount the hesed of Yahweh, I will recount the steadfast love of God. Isaiah, what he's doing here is he's actually issuing to the church and to the, and to the entirety of God's people. He's issuing to us an invitation. What this is, is this is an invitation to anyone and everyone to remember, to recall, to recount just exactly what God has done for his people. So when we recount or when we remember the steadfast, loving acts of God and we do so with one another, what we are doing is consistently retelling one another. And we're retelling one another for the purpose of remembrance. We're retelling the history of God's constant and faithful, steadfast love, which should hopefully lead to our praise of God as we see in this text. And so notice here how this works. Personally, Isaiah absolutely remembers these events. He has been taught them and instructed in them since childhood, but he's also a prophet. So he is the person that delivers a message from God to God's people. But he personally remembers this history. He remembers this history of God's constant and faithful, steadfast love. But by telling others, by reminding the people of God about God's faithful, steadfast love, what he's doing is he is inviting them to remember and to join in with him in his remembrance and in his praise and faithfulness. I will recount the steadfast love of God and the praises of the Lord. So let's just bring this forward for ourselves, right? Let's do a little bit of application. 
As we're celebrating Christmas and the season of Christmas tide, consider what we proclaim to one another every single Christmas season and every single Christmas day. We invite one another to remember and to praise what God has done through the miracle of the Son taking on flesh. And so as we looked at last week and as we just read a moment ago in Isaiah 62, what we are doing is we are inviting one another to remember and to praise God for the implications of the Incarnation. That, as we read in Isaiah 62, that salvation has indeed come. That the way has been prepared. That we are now called God's holy people. God's redeemed. We are sought out by God. We are not forsaken by God. And this is the direction that Isaiah builds upon and takes for the rest of this hymn of praise. Because he invites God's covenant people to not only remember God's faithful and loyal love, but the implications of his love. By how he has worked out our salvation, by covenanting with us as a people and making us his own possession. So look again at how he words this verse. He says, I will recount the hesed, the steadfast love of the Lord, and the praises of the Lord. And then he says this, according to all that Yahweh has granted to us. And the greatness and the the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted us according to his compassion And according to the abundance of his hesed, of his steadfast love, this is a remembrance of the covenant. So for both Israel and Judah, Isaiah was inviting them to remember all of the very intricate details that God had been faithful to his covenant people over the centuries. So he's calling them, remember God's faithfulness by calling Abraham. Remember God's faithfulness to Noah. Remember God's faithfulness to the Exodus generation, to the conquest generation. Remember God's faithfulness and his praises to David and to Solomon and on and on and on. And so now the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Isaiah, by inspiring and preserving this word for us, he's extending, the Spirit is extending this same invitation to us as the church. We, under the new covenant instituted by Christ, are invited to remember God's steadfast, loyal love. And while we also are to remember and praise him absolutely for the faithfulness to Noah and the patriarchs and the exodus and conquest generations, we have even greater evidence of God's steadfast love to his people because of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. And so notice then how this covenantal language then builds in verse 8. It continues on in verse 8 and we read really the foundation of God's loyal and steadfast love to his covenant people. He reads this. He says this, For God has said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. So we read here, what, we read, what we're reading is the foundation for God's steadfast love is the covenant he has made for, with his people. He says, Surely they are my people. And so what he is doing here is this is, what you call, if you like music, this is a deep cut, right? This is going way, way back into, into the history. And he's calling them all the way back to Exodus chapter 6, where God remembers. He hears the crying of the people of Israel in slavery, and he remembers his covenant with Abraham. And he remembers that he promised Abraham to give them a land and a possession and to be their God, and they would be his people and so he, when he remembers this, he calls them, he remembers to deliver, he promises to then deliver them out of slavery in Egypt and return them to the promised land. And in chapter 6, verse 7 of Exodus, he proclaims this. He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you will know 
that I am Yahweh, your God. And so notice how this builds from last week in Exodus, excuse me, in Isaiah 62. Last week we read, Yahweh has proclaimed there in verse 11. Yahweh has proclaimed, or as the Septuagint says, Yahweh has caused to be heard to the ends of the earth that these people are my people. They are my possession. And those people are those whom he has renamed as the holy people, as the redeemed, as the sought out, as the not forsaken. He says here, surely they are my people. They are my people who have gone through my gates and have come by my highway called righteousness. And so God proclaims here, he says that his people are also though, and this is a really interesting phrase, he says, they are children who will not deal falsely. Now I don't know about you, but I have read a decent amount of the Bible and I know that Israel and Judah have dealt falsely quite a few times. <laughs> I also know that I'm still a sinner that's saved by grace and, and I mess up as well, right? I deal falsely sometimes. So I thought this was an interesting phrase. So for the sake of curiosity, I thought, you know what, let, let's, check, let's check out some other translations just to see how they look at the language. And the King James, which I know a few people in the room probably have, God says this. He says, surely they are my people, children that will not lie. Now let's be honest. Israel and Judah, even after they returned from Babylon, they, they lied once or twice, right? So I thought, you know, well, let me check out something else. Because I did look at a lot of Protestant translations that translate directly from the Hebrew. So I thought, you know what, let me, let me go look at the Septuagint. I'm just curious as to how the Septuagint translated this. And it actually phrases this verse in the form of a question. It says this. God says, surely my people, my children, surely they have not rejected me. Now again, let's be honest. Israel, Judah, and even us all these years later are still very much fallen and we are still very much sinners. And every time we sin, every time we choose sin, we are rejecting God and faithfulness to Christ. Even though we've been saved by grace through faith, our sin rejects God's mercy and love and steadfast, loyal love. Now thank God that he is faithful and thank God that he is steadfast where we are not. But the point here is what Isaiah is doing and what God is doing in this verse is he is not calling us to constantly remember or recount our own constant failures and our own constant rejection of God's covenant promises. Rather, what he is doing is telling us that he will not ever, nor does he ever have the intention of breaking his own covenant promises to us. Instead, what God is doing here is he's reminding us of his expectation of us. It's, I will not reject my promises to you, but I also expect you to remain holy and faithful because I am holy and faithful. Matthew Henry writes here, he says, God deals faithfully and fairly with his people, and he also expects that we would deal faithfully and fairly with him. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, God tells Moses to proclaim to the whole nation, he says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And just in case we're tempted to assume this is just a command to the old covenant, Peter picks up on this exact same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. And he tells the churches, he says, Just as he who has called you is holy, you shall be holy in all your conduct. For he has said, I am holy, and you too are to be holy. So based upon this statement here in verse 8, what God is doing again is he is stressing his expectation for holiness 
But he's also telling us, look, this doesn't come without promises. I promise to not be unfaithful to the covenant that I have made with you. And so as we finish the verse, what he says here, he expects this holiness, even though we still consistently fall short of that expectation, we see the promise of it because he says here, and he became their savior. So for the people of Israel and Judah who are in exile in Babylon that are reading this, this is yet another reminder of God's faithfulness and loyalty to his covenant promises. God became their savior by setting them free from Egypt, by delivering them through the Red Sea, by delivering them into the promised land. This is their salvation event. This is where God covenanted with them. This is where God saved them. This is where God redeemed them. And so while we too praise God for his loyalty and his faithfulness to his covenant, this is also a reminder for us that a greater exodus has been accomplished. And this greater exodus has been accomplished in the incarnation and in the death and in the resurrection of Christ. So notice again what what he says in 62 verse 11. That's the text from last week. He says, behold, your salvation comes and his reward, his repayment is before his face, which includes making us a holy people and redeemed and sought out and not forsaken. God himself becomes our savior. And then finally, as we hit verse 9, what God then does, because he is our Savior, he elaborates on that last line of verse 8 in verse 9. And he says this. He says, In all of their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. And as I was looking at this verse, I thought, you know, there's... I started to work through it just from the beginning to end, and I realized, you know, there's a better way of helpfully understanding this verse. And it's starting at the end and circling back. Not only because of how God's steadfast, loyal love informs this whole text, but really there's a particular phrase he uses at the end of verse 9 that I thought was really helpful. He says this. He says, God lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. And I noticed we could try to add a particular era of history on that phrase. But God really isn't deeming an an era of time with this. Rather, what the language is indicating here is that this is something that has already happened. It happened not only in the days of old. Israel and Judah could be reading this and thinking, God redeemed us out of slavery in Egypt, brought us through the sea and the wilderness and into the promised land. Again, that's their salvation event. But it goes further than that because in the language, this also suggests this could be written as He lifted them up and carried them all the days of eternity. Or a phrase that we use quite often and was brought up again in Sunday school this morning. God lifted up his covenant people and carried them before the foundations of the world. John writes in Revelation 13, 8, he says, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, and they shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of the Lamb, who was slain before the foundations of the world. So before the foundations of the world, God lifted up every single one of us who are his own possession by lifting up the Son. Before the foundation of the world, God lifted up his people out of slavery in Egypt, out of slavery in exile in Babylon, and out of slavery to sin and exile from God by lifting up Christ. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus tells Nicodemus, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
In the text from last week in verses 10 and 11, God says, go through, go through my gates and prepare a way for my people and build up my highway and lift up a signal over my people and say, your salvation has come. God carried his covenant people, his covenant promises from before the foundation of the world all the way to the incarnation and to the cross and to the resurrection. And so when with this obvious clear Christology in mind, circle back to the beginning of the verse and we will finish and come to the table. He says, in all of their affliction, he was afflicted. It's hard to miss Christ in that phrase. In our lectionary for today, we have a New Testament reading out of the book of Hebrews, which interestingly enough also came up in Sunday school this morning. This is really all connected pretty well today. So I was looking at this and I thought, you know what, as, as we get ready to close, let's, let's have a little fun, if you weren't having fun already. And let's do, let's do a little biblical theology, all right? And this means basically let's let Scripture help us interpret Scripture. So if you want to, you don't have to, I'm going to read it for you. But if you want to, you can turn over to Hebrews. And we'll be mainly in chapter, chapters 1 and 2. Actually, we will only be in chapters 1 and 2. I'm going to bounce around a little bit. So if you don't want to turn there, that's fine. But let's, let's let Hebrews... Let's let the author of Hebrews help us interpret this passage in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9. So here again we read, In all of their affliction he was afflicted. In Hebrews chapter, 10, chapter 2, verse 10, the author writes, he says, It was fitting that Christ, for whom and by, through, by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In all of their affliction, he was afflicted. One commentator writes here, he says, about Christ sharing in our affliction. Speaking of our affliction, he says, Though there is great affliction, the property of affliction is so altered by the grace of God that it sanctifies us for our good. He goes on and he says, The rigor of affliction is so mitigated and so allayed and balanced with mercy that we are wonderfully supported and comforted underneath it. The troubles of saints are not the same to them as they are to unbelievers. They are not afflictions, but they are medicine. In all of our affliction, Christ was afflicted, and our afflictions become medicine for sanctification. And so we sing this hymn of praise at Christmas because as we celebrate the miracle of the incarnation, we know that because of his incarnation and all of our affliction, Christ himself was afflicted. And then we come to this interesting clause. And it says, and the angel of his presence saved them. Now again, this, this initially threw me off because my first thought was, all right, if we're going to use Hebrews to help us here, because that just seemed interesting to me. I know that Jesus is greater than angels according to all of Hebrews 1. So what does Isaiah mean? And so I thought, well, hang on, let's, let's just look at exactly what he says. He says here again, he says, And the angel of his presence saved them. I think Hebrews is again helpful here because an angel does not redeem. Only the son can redeem. And so in Hebrews chapter 1, we read this in verses 5 and verse 13. Some of it which was echoed in our, uh, from our psalm this morning that we read and sang. In verse 5 of Hebrews 1, the author writes, 
For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Well, the obvious answer is God has never said that to any angel. He has only said it to the son. And in verse 8 of Hebrews 1, he even answers this. He says, But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Again, one commentator writes here, he says, This should be absolutely and unequivocally understood as the Lord Jesus. He is the angel of the covenant because he is God's messenger to the world. And he is the angel of God's presence because he is the express image of the invisible God. And then finally, we read here in this verse, In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He redeemed his people. Again, this one kind of threw me off because I'm like, well, love, I completely understand, but why pity? Right? I mean, we are honestly in a very pitiable state in our sin without Christ, but why pity? What does this mean? And so, I, I, again, I started looking at other translations, and I thought the Septuagint was actually quite helpful here because it reads this way. It says, because God loved them and spared them. And so what the Septuagint is doing is grounding God's pity in his steadfast, loyal, covenant love to his people. Those whom he has redeemed and those whom he has covenanted with. Those whom we read last week in verse 12 of chapter 62, God has renamed as the holy people and the redeemed of the Lord, the sought out and the not forsaken. This is you and me. This is the implication of the incarnation of Christ. And so as we continue to celebrate throughout the rest of Christmastide, the rest of this week, Let us recount and remember together the steadfast, loyal, and covenant love of the Lord our God by lifting us up because he lifted Christ up before the foundations of the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.